So let's pick up in chapter 2 of Revelation, uh, the letter to the churches, at least the beginning of the letters. And uh, if we could just read again, we'll read again the few short verses to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we thank you this morning again for your word. We thank you that though these words were spoken and then written so many, many years ago, centuries ago, millennia ago, they are still the word of God for us today. We ask that you would help us to understand and to hear what the Spirit is saying today to the churches that exist on the earth and especially to the churches in the Western world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, just very quickly, um, some review very briefly of what we talked about last week. Uh, it was ironic that the name itself of Smyrna uh, meant in Greek um, myrrh, which was a, uh, a burial spice because of, of the fact that what was going to be written to them would entail so much regarding suffering and tribulation, even to the point of death. And as I was praying again and thinking about these, these words again this week, I thought, you know, it's, it, I think we need to say this again and again and again, that the experience that we have in Christianity, of our Christianity in the Western world, is abnormal in terms of biblical history. What you and I are living in right now, what we're experiencing regarding our faith and our Christian experience is not the norm in, in biblical history. If you study biblical history, even uh, just a cursory study of it, not even an in-depth study, you'll find that repeatedly again and again and again, there is a, a history and a story of a great cost of persecution, of suffering, of martyrdom throughout the church's history. And it wasn't until probably... Uh, the late 17th century and uh, 16th century, sorry, 18th century, late 18th century, and then into the 19th century, that things began to become what we would now call normal for us. But up to that point, there was great suffering. I mean, even if you study, of course, we know the early church's history and the suffering they endured. Uh, the Middle Ages was dark for, it's called the Dark Ages for a reason not just because of the, the life on the earth at the time, but because of the state of the world, because of the church and the darkness within the church and, the, and the, the suffering of those that were true followers of Christ. And then even into the Reformation, if you study that time period, you know that many men were killed for their faith. And many men died for their faith um, for, for reasons that we today would, would just go, what? Why would they kill them for that? 
Um, Tyndale, who we know was a translator of the Bible, was killed because of his desire to translate the Bible um, into English and, and because he actually did it. Um, so there, there were many, this is the history, this is the norm. And we live in a world today that is so not that, that when we read these kinds of things, we want to go quickly past them because they don't feel, if we don't feel like they really relate to us. They're not in our current experience. Sure, we might have a little bit of, you know, people that, you know, don't like us for some or other reason. We might have family that we've struggled with. But we don't suffer at this point, and we're thankful for that. But we want to keep in mind that, that these words to Jesus were meant for the church throughout the ages to hear and to understand. And so it is the church of Smyrna who is the church that is, is in this seven letters of book of Revelation is the church that Jesus addresses regarding suffering most and what it means for them to be followers of Christ. And as I said last week, again, if you remember, that Smyrna was a very wealthy city. It was the wealthiest city in Asia Minor at the time. It's still a very beautiful city in Turkey. And, and it's a, a, a prosperous city in the sense of, of its, if it's in that part of the world. But in those days, it was the jewel of Asia. And it is ironic, it is ironic that the very most beautiful, wealthy city would have what would be probably the poorest church because of their faith, because of their faith. So the history of the city itself is very interesting. We talked about Polycarp last week and his role in that church who probably was the key leader, the voice, the bishop he was called. Um, he was uh, a disciple right from John. He, he knew John. He, he sat at the feet of John. And then his disciple, Irenaeus, would later write and tell us of Polycarp's life and Polycarp's relationship with John. And so, and I said this last week, it's very, very likely that Polycarp was alive when this letter was delivered to the church in Smyrna. And maybe he might have been the one that read it. Because he was already, he was 30 years old, 27, 28, 9 years old, was already probably emerging in that church as a leader. He lived to be 86 or 87, so he was a key leader in that church for many years. And so it was, it was if he heard those words, the words we just read, if he heard them with his own ears, or if he read them with his own mouth, that he would then have to live that out in his life. And as I read last week the account of his martyrdom, we know that what he heard that day settled into his heart and set the course for his life. Because I cannot imagine that it became any easier to live in Smyrna after the Lord Jesus wrote, because he was telling them to be ready for what would be coming. So it isn't as though it got easy. It might have been bad for a brief time and then better, maybe, we don't know exactly all of the history, but we do know that Polycarp was martyred 50-some years after this letter was written and read. And so he lived this out, as did probably many other believers in that church together. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a church in a city, only one church in a huge, at that time, large city, 200,000 people plus, a small church probably, a band of believers who had faith in Christ, who are paying a great price, who probably met like we do every single week just to encourage each other and strengthen each other in the faith. 
They probably met in homes during the week to encourage each other. That was the Christian experience. They were not being able to buy and sell. They were being persecuted because they refused to bow down to the emperor of Rome. They would not worship the god of idolatrous Rome, the emperor, nor the gods around them of the peoples in the city. And so they were not being allowed to sell and buy and do business, probably maybe even losing homes. The book of Hebrews refers not to the Greeks, but to Jews who were not able to keep their homes, who were being forced to sell their homes or their homes being taken from them. We're talking about persecution uh, unlike anything we, thank God, have ever experienced. But I want to say this again. That's the norm throughout the Bible's history. The New Testament history, for sure. And, of course, we know Old Testament history well as well. But the New Testament church from the beginning, and I think the reason is, one of the reasons, there's a number of reasons. One of them, obviously, is because God in his sovereignty allows it to do whatever he needs to do on the earth, to accomplish his purposes and to work into his people something that he wants in them. But it is the way of the cross. The Christian life is the way of the cross. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. That's the life that we live. Jesus said that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. It's going to cost you everything, he said. And it's not because he enjoys us suffering. It's because that is the way of God on the earth in a fallen world, is that the light has to be distinct. And the way that it's going to be most distinct is people who are willing to pay a price, right? When no one else will. And so the church of Smyrna was that, was that kind of a church. It was a suffering church. It was a church that was um, enduring um, trial and, and persecution and poverty. And so let's look at the words of the Lord to them. He says, write to, to them these words. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Of course, we know, um, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. The words of the first and the last. I went up to Pergamum. The words of the first and the last. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So these were to bring comfort and strength and encouragement to a suffering church because Jesus was identifying as the first and the last to them. That's the first way he identifies himself is as the first and the last. What does that reveal? We talked about last week. The sovereign control, the eternal nature of God. The God is eternal from beginning to end. He is the first, the last, the beginning and the end and everything in the middle. And he has control and authority over it all. That gives me great comfort. My life is not random. God did not create the world and then spin it like a top and let it just begin to lose its energy as it spun and spun and spun until finally it would just teeter and totter. He is in control of it from beginning and to end. My life is in his hands. I know you can, I can do this. I can look back, and I've done this many times, look back on my life even as a small child before I knew anything of God and see the hand of God in my life. There's a number of instances that I recall that God, I think, allowed me to recall where I see now When I was even young, God's hand. One time I fell off my bike and a bus drove right past my head. I mean, I thought it was from here to, you know, it might have been two, five feet. I don't know how far it was. But as a kid, I thought, oh my gosh, that bus almost ran over my head. 
I think of all the things that happened to me in my life. I think at times, and I sat in a classroom and looked around the classroom, and I, I, more than one time I thought, I'm not like everybody else. And it wasn't just a little kid being insecure. I think it was God saying, already calling me out, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And I can remember thinking, I'm different, I'm different. It was the hand of God on my life. Of course, as I got older and all the things that took place, God, it's, this is his words, the first and the last. And then he uses, he also calls himself the one who died and came to life. The one who died and came to life. Of course, again, what does this speak of? It's a church that's facing what? Death. And what is he saying to them? I've overcome death. Your greatest fear, your greatest enemy, I have overcome it. And again, I've been thinking about this often because of people that we now know because of the age we are that are beginning to die, friends, people who pass on, and you think, I told Kath this last night, we're sitting eating, and out of the blue, I just, death, I said, death is a strange thing. I said, it's so final. People that we love, when they're gone, they're gone. I mean, from this earth. Obviously, we know there's an afterlife. But I've been thinking about this, you know, that it's so beautiful, the Christian life, the Christian faith, because we have already passed from death to life. And that happened when we believed. And so Jesus said this to Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb. He who believes in me will never die. And even if he dies, yet again he will live. That's the Christian experience. He's overcome. And that was to give them, again, these are not casual words from Jesus. He's not like identifying himself in some, you know, abstract way. He's the first and the last sovereign, the one who died and yet came to life. And so the Lord would then say to them, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. And I think I talked about this last week, that this tribulation came to them in a number of ways. The first was their poverty that was imposed upon them. And I said this last week, I believe that that word means absolutely destitute, not even able to meet your basic needs. It wasn't just that they were poor, they were destitute. Have you ever been around someone who was absolutely destitute in their poverty? It's a sad experience. I had one instance that sticks out, and I've told this story probably, if you've heard it, forgive me, in Mexico when I was down there ministering and we went into the home of a pastor. I preached in a church on a Sunday morning. And um, it was probably a church of about 50, something like that. Small church on the side of a road, main highway. And um, during the service, a handful of young people, kids from the youngest ages of probably just maybe four or five, up to a young, probably two or three young women that were in their teens or maybe early 20s, got on the stage and they sang a song. And afterward, we went to the prep pastor's house and I found out that most of the kids on the stage were his. 
he probably had, I think he had seven or eight children. And from the little ones up to the younger, to the older girls who were 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. And we went into their house. It had no windows and no doors. Dirt floors. It had one little table with a couple of those white plastic chairs you see it buy at the Costco or Home Depot. And then bags of rice that the rest of them would sit around to eat. In the middle of the table, they had a, a, a pot with one big bone in it that they probably had cooked, I don't know, 10 times at least to make soup. Of course, they had rice and they had some kind of a Kool-Aid drink. And that was their meal. There was a, it was a two-room house. It was the room we were sitting in and there was a large bedroom and they had hammocks where they all slept in the same room, in hammocks. The windows, no windows, no doors. There were chickens that were running in and out of the house. And they were filled with joy. They were filled with joy. They loved the Lord Jesus. And I sat there that day, and, and I ate that soup, and I drank that Kool-Aid. And we held hands, and they, and they prayed, and I thought, this is, this is not something that we ever understand in America. In the midst of great poverty, you often you'll find in believers great joy. It's almost like the simplicity brings joy. It's almost like the lack of concern for the things of the world allows them to have a deeper joy. I don't know what it is. But that's what the church in Smyrna was like. It was greatly impoverished. It was destitute. They were wanting to live holy lives. They were wanting to follow Jesus. And simply because of that, they were being persecuted and not being allowed to own, to buy, to sell. And Jesus said to them, he says, I know your tribulation. He says, I know your tribulation. <clears throat> and he calls this a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know that you're being slandered in verse 9 by those who say they are Jews but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. So what does he mean by this? Well, the true Jew is what Paul would teach us in Galatians and in other places in the New Testament was not someone who was a Jew by genealogy, but he was a Jew because of faith. So you and I are the true Jews. We are, in a sense, more Jewish than the people living in Israel. Because we are of the faith of Abraham. And that's what, that's what Jesus is speaking to John, through John here, is that they call themselves Jews, but they really are not Jews. Because Jew, Jewishness is Christocentric. It is not genealogical. It is by faith in Christ. The people of God are now those that are in Christ. Those are the true Jews. And so he calls the slander they were receiving. And so it's interesting. Not only were they being persecuted by the, the city, by the Roman city's government in Smyrna, but they were being persecuted by the Jews in the city because they were viewed as a threat to the Jews' freedom. They had made a deal. They had made a deal somehow with the government. Leave us alone. Let us worship our God. We'll honor what you're doing. We'll obey you. We'll recognize Caesar as who he is, but leave us alone. And they made a deal. The Christians wouldn't do it. 
The Christians would not bow down. They would not relinquish their faith for anything else. They would not compromise it in any way. And so they were a threat to the Jews, and they were being slandered by the Jews and being accused by the Jews and being brought before the government by the Jews. And so their persecution was also due to what the Jews were doing. One of the things I read as I was reading this is that the Jews accused them of drowning their children and of being cannibals. How do you, what do you think the drowning of the children represented? It was baptism. They would baptize their kids, and the Jews says, oh, they're drowning their kids. Of course, cannibalism, we know where that accusation came from. John 6, the Lord Jesus, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And what did Christians do? They took communion. They sat at the, and they had the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and they remembered the words of the Lord Jesus. And they took within themselves, by faith, the life of Christ. They assimilated by grace the life of Christ through communion. That's what we do every week. We, we assimilate. We take into our bodies by faith the grace of God through what those, those small little elements represent of covenant, right? Of something that God has done for us in his son. It's more than a symbol. It is a symbol, but it is more than a symbol. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember. Remember who I am, what I did, but remember what it all means. Remember what it represents. Remember the grace of God that is in this cup and in this bread. And so they did that every week, as a church should do, I believe. So they're being falsely accused by the Jews. And the Lord says to them in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then he tells them, because the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. This is an interesting statement. Well, first of all, the prison was literal. It's not symbolic. It's not a metaphor. It's not representing something. They were going to be thrown, and they had been thrown into prison. And so they used in that time, in the, this culture... The prison was used for two purposes, primarily. It was used as a threat, and it was also a prelude to martyrdom. So they would take them, and they would throw them into prison to frighten them and to frighten their families and to frighten the church. In fact, it's just happening now again all over the face of the earth, similarly, especially in China. And also, of course, they would throw them into prison before they would martyr them. So when they would be rounded up, probably taken in the middle of the night out of their homes, put into a prison. They didn't know if this was going to end for them at some time in the next week or two weeks or month or whatever, or if, in fact, they were going to be martyred. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a husband or a wife or a friend or a brother to someone who is taken and they're in prison and you don't know where that time in prison is leading and to live with the uncertainty of that? And the fear, the threat of that. That's why Jesus said, do not fear. Because the normal response would be, would be fear. But the Lord, he says, he says, I am with you. I am with you. Do not fear. Behold, the devil is going to throw you into prison and you will be tested. This, this 10 days is an interesting, again, we've talked about the symbol the significance of the, of the numbers in the Bible, 10 
speaks to what? Completion. Something done all the way to the end. It's, it's complete. Ten days is not maybe, I don't think, a literal ten days. But in other words, the Lord is saying it's going to be as long as necessary for what is going to be needing to be done to be completed both in you and in my purposes. Did, it, did you guys, I think, I know Becky, you did. Did you guys read that um, letter from the pastor in China who was thrown into prison this last year? Did you guys, did you hear any or read any of that? Can I just read a little bit of it to you? So pastor in China who was a pastor of a church of about 100 people who was just taken and his home was ransacked and raided. Um, and they think that it might have happened because of an a, a, a article that he wrote called Meditations on the Religious War, and he posted it on social media. And in that, he condemned communism, and he, earned, he urged Christians in China to civil disobedience. It's kind of like what Bonhoeffer was doing in Germany at the time of Hitler. It's interesting. That's a whole other subject that we can get into someday. This issue of civil disobedience in the face of evil. Romans, Paul teaches us to obey the authorities, but we only obey them as long as they are doing what is right and just. As soon as they, as soon as they come against what we know to be the truth of the word of God, we can then, we should then, not only can we, we should speak against it. We should speak against evil in our society today that's being imposed on us by government. And to what degree that civil disobedience ends up becoming depends on, I believe, what God is doing in the midst of his people. But this man spoke out against it and he urged the church in China to civil disobedience. And so he was taken up and put into prison. But he wrote something, and he asked that it would be published, and they allowed it to be published. And it was his declaration, and what he called it, of faithful disobedience. Let me just read this very quickly, parts of it. He says, as a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving People of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. That's the issue. Conscience. Say that with me. Conscience. That's the issue. When the government violates our conscience, we will say no. No. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I've been called to. And it is not the goal. It is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. For all the hideous realities and unrighteous politics and arbitrary laws, for they all manifest the, the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. And they also manifest the fact that, the, that true hope and a per perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. He goes on to speak about the sovereignty of God, trusting in it, and he says, for this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed 
by God to rule temporarily, or temporarily, excuse me, not temporarily, temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. Now, that's, that's another level of faith. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods, that's a key, nonviolent methods, to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. So he's doing it joyfully and willingly. He goes on, and this is an amazing manifesto that you can read on, on your own. But he says this, if I'm imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority that is higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And then he sums it up by saying this, those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. And when I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. This is, this, is a, this is the heartbeat of what Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna. It's that kind of faith and that kind of a Lord and that kind of an overcoming faith and the sovereignty of God and the power of God, the one who himself has overcome death. So he says to them, do not be fear. He says, do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Now, I don't think I would have wanted to have heard those words if I'd have been sitting that day in that church. Because that can only mean one thing, is that that possibility is very present. These are the words of the sovereign Lord to a suffering church not only a church that did exist at that time, probably about 98 A.D., but a true, to a church that would exist throughout history, 
all the way until the end of this age to a church that exists today on the face of the earth. And again, as I said when we began, these words are so foreign to us because they are not, our, they are not in our experience in any way. We hear them, we know stories, we've read accounts, but they don't relate to us. But I'm saying, I believe that the Spirit of God is saying to the church today, across the face of the earth, these words as well as the others that he wrote to the other six churches. And I would have to say, and this is a hard thing to say, but if you are a parent or a grandparent, by the wisdom of God, you need to begin preparing your children for what it may mean for them to follow Christ. Not to frighten them, but to teach them what it means to be a believer. And even at a young age, to tell them that to follow Jesus is not going to be easier and it might get harder and harder and harder. And in fact, it will get harder and harder and harder. Even in the great United States of America, a country that we all thank God for, that we live in. They were to look through their suffering to the Lord. They were to look through their suffering. Can I say that again? Through their suffering. They weren't asking that it wouldn't happen because they couldn't keep it from happening. God is sovereign. But they were to look through it to the Lord who promised to deliver them and strengthen them and to purify them and to keep them even in death. I, I, I've been thinking about this recently and uh, that everything that as I think I've said this a couple of times recently maybe everything of the Christian life is in Christ everything even death even death is in Christ isn't that good news we don't die alone in fact when we die in this bodily form we simply pass into the next life. Because we are already in Christ. And Christ already died. And already rose. So though we have a sense of the fear of the unknown, of death in this life, and, and as I said a moment ago, the absolute certainty of death and the finality of death and all of that, that means and as a human being, the truth is, as believers, we've already passed into life. And so Jesus would say this to them with absolute desire to strengthen them and comfort them and encourage them. Do not fear, but be faithful unto death. Because death cannot harm you. Death cannot keep you. Death is not to be feared as a believer. And though it has finality for those on this side, on the earth, it is not a finality. The soul will live forever. I read an article this week, a, a, a man that I greatly respect who wrote a blog about um, what's going on in our culture today and, and the uh, casualness of premarital sex and, and then, of course, that leading to the casualness of abortion and so on and so on. And, he made a comment that just stuck in my brain. He said, every human soul that is conceived is an eternal soul. Every single soul that is conceived, 
on a one-night date, on, a, on whatever it might have been, on a, on a Valentine's night with a husband and a wife, every single soul that is conceived is an eternal soul. So there's an incredible responsibility that we have as human beings in what God has given us, this ability to create another human. And that is why this is so important as the Lord speaks to this church. Because he is saying to them, you will not die. You will live forever. And you have already passed. Be faithful unto death. And I think also it's because not only has death already been dealt with for us in Christ. But it's because this life proves the genuineness of our faith. This life proves the genuineness of our faith. So if we can find the grace to live without fear, can I say that again? If you and I can find the grace to live without fear, it proves the genuineness of our faith. So many believers are fear, faith are fear-filled. They're afraid of all sorts of things. And we're human. We all have emotion. That's good. But as a believer, we should not be consumed with fear. Fear of losing our children. Fear of losing our money. Fear of something terrible happening in, to the economy. Fear of, fear, I mean, name it. All you have to do is look at Facebook. You see how many people have all these random concerns and fears that consume their heart and their mind. And hardly any of us speak of the fear of death, but I, I, mean, I imagine many believers live with that dread of fear. The fact that we can live in this life without fear, listen, I believe proves the genuineness of our faith to a great degree. And so the Lord told them to be faithful unto death. Because they would prove that they were in Christ through this genuineness of faith. So there are three incentives, and we'll close with this. Three incentives the Lord gave them to be faithful. The first is this. He says they were rich. He said they were rich in what was most important. He said, you are poor, but really, he said, no, you're rich. They were rich in what the world could not give them. And so the first incentive for us to be faithful is to store up for ourselves. And this is a way that we can become faithful, is to store up for ourselves eternal wealth, eternal treasure, when Matt preached a few weeks ago on being extravagant in our, in our giving, extravagant in our generosity, that's the heart of, of a believer. It's that, it's that when we are willing to let go, open our hands with what we have, it overcomes within us the love of that thing we're letting go of. If you don't hold on to it, you don't fear losing it. If you don't hold it too tightly, you, you trust God to, to have it in his hands. And so he is saying to them, an incentive to be faithful is to become 
wealthy in those things that the world cannot give you. Those things that are being stored up for the eternal life. And I wonder at times if we really believe this. If those just are nice platitudes, Christian platitudes that we would speak. Do we really count the blessings of what is to come to be more valuable than what this world offers? I was uh, listening to some music a couple of days ago. I was, I was outside doing some things, working, and I had a music going, and I was listening to a song, a worship song, and, and I found myself, and I don't, I'm sure this happens to you guys too as well, I found myself just stop and just begin to worship and like to be overcome with emotion in it, like just this sense of my love for the Lord and my desire, you know, for Him and thankfulness and all of the things that just come when you are caught up with, with that heart of worship. And I, I, as that, in that very moment, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. This is what it's going to be like forever. Because Kath and I will talk at times in our, you know, humanness, husband and wife, how much we love each other, of the future life. And, man, I hope I'm with you, babe. And, you know, I hope we can be together and all this kind of stuff, you know, which when you love each other, you feel that way, you think that way. And that, in that moment when I was feeling that way, I thought, it won't matter. It won't, those things will not matter. They will not matter one at all because we are going to be so caught up, so caught up with him. And when we've tasted in this life just the glimpses, the, the smallest tastes of worship, the smallest times in prayer, the smallest times of intimacy that overwhelm us and overcome us of the goodness of God, of the love of God in Christ, of the Lord himself, of his, who he is, those are just a foretaste of eternity and how amazingly beautiful it's going to be with him. And I guess I wonder at times, do we really believe that that's worth enough to deny ourselves in this life to gain that? I know we do, but this world is powerful, isn't it? How it wants to steal our hearts away. So the first thing he says is, store up for yourselves riches that are eternal. The second incentive to being faithful, I think he says, is that he promised that they would wear the crown of life. Now, that doesn't sound like an incentive to me, quite honestly. You know, I'm thinking, I'm not really into crowns. <laughs> I don't need a crown, and I think I'd look goofy in a crown. So no crowns for me. Well, what is he saying? What is he talking about? And it's interesting, in the New Testament, it, other places, Paul calls it the crown of beauty, same thing, or it's called the crown of glory, or it's called the crown of righteousness. The Lord Jesus calls it the crown of life, but Paul calls it the crown of beauty or glory or righteousness in other places. So it is all of those things. It's all of those things at some level. Well, in their culture, they were very familiar with crowns because crowns were given to the victors in games. So some commentators believe that possibly they're thinking of somehow getting a crown by overcoming. But I read in other places, and I think I think this way as well, that the games were abhorred by the church because they were associated with their suffering. It was in the games, it was in the Colosseum that they would actually throw them to the wild beasts. Bob was telling me that he was in Azur, Turkey, uh, a number of years ago, and he walked, wandered into, a, into the ruins of a Colosseum. 
not even really recognizing what it might have been possibly fully at the time. That was probably the Colosseum that Polycarp was martyred in. Or for sure, others of his compatriots, his brothers and sisters, thrown, they were, would put them in, the, as you know, Colosseums with, with lions, with wild animals, till they would be torn up in front of the people watching and cheering. How sick. Well, for them, the games were associated with suffering. So the crown of life probably wasn't the victor's crown. But in fact, it was reigning with Christ. It was representing the reigning with Christ through death, even unto death in this life, and then into the age to come. It is not a literal crown. It's a crown that represents the crown of glory, a crown of righteousness, a crown of beauty that is that which is ours because we are reigning with Christ in this life. Now, that doesn't mean that we over, we're reigning in the same sense that he reigns with total authority and absolute sovereign power. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. But it means that we are overcomers. It's the end of Romans 8. You know that text? The end of Romans 8? Let's read it together. Verse 18. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings, listen, boy, this is not American thinking. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, there it is, that is to be revealed to us, the crown of glory. They're not worth comparing with that. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he goes on in the end of the chapter, and he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us. How will he also not, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? There it is, reigning. Graciously give us all things. That's the reigning. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, the church in Smyrna would cry out, no, no. Or distress, no. Or persecution, they would say, no. Or famine, they were experienced, no. Or even nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, that is from Isaiah. That's the, that's the heartbeat of Christianity. It is a cross-centered life. And it's a cross-centered life because it trusts God. Because it trusts that God is able to overcome everything, including death, and he has in Christ already done that. For all these things, we are, in all these things, we are more, here it is, this language of victory, conquerors through him who loved us. This is the reigning. 
And, and sometimes those words are taken and twisted to try to be applied to success in this life, to prosperity in this life, to never being sick in this life, to never having problems. in the, That's not what Paul is speaking of. We know that from the context we just read. Because he's talking about persecution. He's talking about distress. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the crown of glory, that authority, that ruling and reigning that we have in Christ where we are more than conquering. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and here it is, that neither death nor life, sometimes life is more frightening than death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor black holes in the universe, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't leave anything out. That Christ is not greater than and has not overcome and that we are not victorious over in him. They were to be faithful through storing up riches to eternal life. They were to be faithful because he promised that he would give them this crown, this crown of beauty, this crown of righteousness in through into eternity. And thirdly, they were to be faithful because the Lord spoke something not only for Smyrna but for all the churches throughout the ages that he who has an ear to hear would hear. He said, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Interesting statement. What is the second death? Well, I guess before we can know what the second death is, we have to know what the first death is in the Bible. Because there are two births and there are two deaths. The first first birth, we know, is in a mother giving birth. The second birth is regeneration. The first death is this body dying. But what is the second death? The second death is eternal. It's the eternal death. The first is the temporal death of this body. The second is the eternal death of body and soul. And so the Lord says, this is to be to you an incentive To know that you will not experience that as you are faithful, as you learn to live in this life, not understanding everything, not having answers to everything, experiencing things that you wished you weren't experiencing, enduring things that you didn't believe and don't feel that you can endure, but you are able to by the grace of God. Continuing in the faith, continuing in the faith. Listen, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Unto the end, through whatever life might bring you, through whatever God might allow, through whatever the world might threaten and might, in fact, do to be faithful. This is an incentive, but you will not experience that. I mean, let me say to you, that's all the incentive I need. I've been thinking about a lot of strange things lately. In my times of thinking and meditation, I thought about, I spent a long time thinking about hell last week. 
And Kath and I were talking. Everything comes out of conversations that she and I probably have just casually over dinner. And we talked about hell one day. And I started thinking, I started doing some research and study biblically on it. Oh my goodness. And then I started thinking about people that I love who have already died. I'm not kidding you, it's terrible thought. You know that. People that are, you love that are, have gone on. If the Bible is true, which I believe and know that is, hell is a terrible, terrible reality. And Jesus uses that, he uses that as a means of encouraging them to faithfulness, not to be fearful, but to say to them, listen, you've overcome even that in me. Jesus spoke to them in, as disciples. He says, listen, don't be afraid of men. When you stand before them, the Lord will give you the words to speak to governors and to princes and to kings and to presidents and to senators. Don't be afraid. He said, don't be afraid of them. He said, but fear God. Because what can man do? Man can kill the body. He said, but fear God who has the ability to kill both body and soul. He's talking about the eternal nature of mankind, of a man. Polycarp, and I read this last week, when threatened by the proconsul with dying by burning, which they ended up trying to do, said, you can threaten me with fire that burns for a time, but it's quickly quenched. Do you not know that the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come is an everlasting punishment? So even in that time, I think those words had settled into Polycarp's heart of what Jesus had used as a means of encouraging them to be faithful. And, you know, I think I'll close just by saying this. We don't want to go on any longer, but I think as believers, it's really important for us at times to reflect on the, the, the deeper things of, of the faith, not deep theology, but truths that are eternal. You know, you need to slow down and quiet yourself long enough to let some things settle deep into your heart. And these are some of those things that we would comprehend and grasp the eternal truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church of Smyrna was an amazing church, a very poor church, um, but a church that God had shown his great love for in a very deep way through encouragement. So we don't have time for questions. Sorry, guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God this morning. Thank you for um, the, the, the culture, that the, the society, the nation that we live in where we have lived with such great freedom. We thank you for it because we know that it is your sovereign design that the United States of America would have existed on the earth for these last 200 years. And all of the things that have come about because of this great country's ethics and values and principles.
We also know that the spirit of the age is at work. So we are not foolish to believe that things will always remain the way they are. We pray that we as Christians in this 21st century would be wise. We would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today. And help us to teach our children well. And prepare them to live a life that they have to live in the days to come. Thank you, Lord. Bless this meeting today as we gather together. Encourage the saints. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. No class next week. No class next week.